0: Our scripture for today is Second Timothy three, ten through seventeen. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work.
1: Good morning, everybody. It is really nice to... Be here and look out and see a lot of familiar faces. My name is Jared Kenning, and uh, I'm on the pastoral staff here at Cole Community Church, but the elders, for some reason, wanted to send me far, far away from the congregation. Uh, And my wife and I serve in the Czech Republic. We have for the last 12 years. We're going to have a vision lunch to talk about our ministry after second service at 1230 in the Fireside Room. We would love for you to come And be with us, and we can share a little bit about what God has been doing in us, and through us, and in the Czech Republic. So, you're welcome to come to that. Would you please pray with me before we jump in to our text today? Father, to say that we need you sounds like an understatement to me. Maybe desperately need you, really and truly need you might be better. Father, we live in a time of infinite distractions. And I just want to ask now that you'd help us to focus on you and your words. That we wouldn't be distracted from hearing your voice. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe life into the words that I'm about ready to say. And breathe life into our hearts and souls. And I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, I was in Boise last, about two years ago, and I remember thinking, the cultural landscape has shifted. It's almost like when tectonic plates kind of build up pressure, and then finally, they slip, and the earthquake hits. President Trump had recently been elected, and for the first time, I witnessed major divisions political divisions among American evangelicals. People stopped talking to each other based on who they voted for. There were some Facebook fights going on. I know people who left their church because of political views. Don't worry. I'm not going to preach a sermon about politics. But I think that the election was emblematic of the larger cultural shift we find ourselves in. We're living in a culture now that is polarized Where there's kind of a hard right and a hard left that is emerging And it's creating a reality where we're actually farther and farther apart from each other We live in a culture that's politicized We look to politicians, supreme courts, and protests To solve our deepest problems And yet at the same time We're feeling less and less represented, aren't we? And lastly, we live in a culture that has become hyper-individualized. We focus on celebrities. We focus on self, image building, kind of finding our own subjective truth. We've got YouTube. We've got a You version of the Bible. We have iPhones. And at the same time, we find ourselves, if I could use Marx's words, alienated and alone. I sense tensions building up, and there are many people, not just kind of end-timer Christians, who wonder, when will the plates shift again? When will the next earthquake hit? And we can relate to Paul's words in Timothy that Rod preached on last week, where he says, there will be terrible times in the last days. I want to focus today on the question how then shall we live in such times? How can we live in such a way that shines light into the darkness, that brings hope into our terrible world? How can we live in a way that brings peace? amongst tension and division. How can we be the people of God? Uh, So we're continuing in Paul's letter to Timothy, who's his closest companion. Paul wrote this at the end of his life. He's in prison. He knows that the end is near. And he's passing on his church-planting ministry to Timothy. And he's reminding him how to live in these times, how to be the kind of man that pleases God So uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles If you don't have them open uh, And we can look at the text together But I also want to ask Would you guys Open your hearts with me To God Open your hearts to the possibility That He could speak Afresh to us this morning I'm going to try to do that You guys try to do it too We'll do it together Here's the structure of the text. It's kind of simple. The first and last verses, 10 and 17, they act as bookends describing how to live what Paul calls a godly life in a dark age. Patient, loving, faithful, doing good works. And then the middle talks about how it could be possible to become that kind of person. Can you see the difference? One is kind of a description of that person. And the other is about how do we become that kind of person? And I want to focus on the middle part today because if we focus too much on that description, we kind of fall into that category of we're trying to whitewash a gravestone, manage our behaviors, where God really wants to make transformation deep inside so that we become the people we were created to be. I want to look at three things that God gives us to be and become that kind of person in this dark world. The first is Scripture. The second is a ministry of presence. And the third is suffering. And I want to work backwards in the text. I hope that Paul will forgive me for this, Um, but I think it'll make sense. So we're going to start with verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Scripture. This is probably the major fault line that divides Christians. And it has for centuries. But in the last few decades in America, we've polarized over Scripture. On one hand, we have conservatives or what used to be called fundamentalists. And on the other hand, we've got progressives or liberals. I want to look at how each group might kind of look at this verse and then dig a little bit more into the verse. So, conservatives. They see this verse and they think, sola scriptura, the bulwark of Protestantism, doctrine of Scripture, right? Conservatives tend to take Scripture... And use it to formulate the right answers Dogma Doctrines Believing the right things They take this verse and argue about inerrancy and infallibility And then go to Therefore I need to correct you Rebuke you Reprove, prove, teach you Because that's what the verse says, right? So what's the problem? Well, confession here I fall into this group myself uh, So I think I can tell you why it might be problematic We can strive to have the right answers For the wrong reasons And miss the point of right living Or what Paul calls in this text Godly living You see, if you're like me I'm often driven to look like a good Christian, to have the right answers, because when I have the right answers, it makes me feel secure, like I've done the right thing. It sometimes makes me feel better than others, therefore more powerful, admired. It makes me feel worthy. But I can tell you, verily, verily, I can tell you, that living a life under the pressure of having to appear like being a good Christian is not a life to be lived. There is not much life to be lived in checking off a list or having to prove yourself right. But perhaps more problematic than that is when I'm like that, I hurt other people. I turn them off to God. So, To be committed to something like the doctrine of scripture, which I totally am, is simply not enough. So, that's one side. Uh, The other side, progressives. They tend to be younger, urban, well-off, white. I kind of fall, I can relate to this, uh, I kind of fall into this except for the young part. The well-off part <laughs> um, This verse to them Probably just isn't All that important It could mean a lot of things Scripture can mean a lot of things It depends on your point of view Right To use the Bible as a guide For how we should live our lives Every aspect of our lives Is well Outdated Irrelevant Irrelevant And in some cases, just flat out wrong. Some in this category pick and choose verses that they like and throw away the others they don't like. But I don't see them running to the sacred writings for salvation and healing and wisdom. I think that a lot of Christians in this group are actually reacting to a fundamentalism that they experienced as so judgmental and unlivable. And if I'm honest, I'm actually thankful for people in this group. I'm thankful that they don't want to continue in just kind of a moralistic posturing or a rule-keeping kind of Christianity. It takes a lot of courage to reject that. And at the same time, I'm concerned I'm concerned they're opening their hearts to lies and views that don't bring salvation and wisdom, healing. I'm concerned they're selling out to consumerism and kind of pick and choose shopping theology. I'm concerned they want all the good things of the kingdom peace, love, the beautiful life, gifts, justice, but without the king. I'm concerned about the burden of having to be the final decision maker in all areas of life in an age of infinite and disposable options. We were not made to carry that kind of burden. And I don't think it's a coincidence that millennials, kind of that core of progressivism, are experiencing abnormally high rates of anxiety and depression. So to kind of coolly disregard this verse and go do yoga or something instead might be closing the door to the king himself okay so i've been poking at you guys everybody tells me you don't you don't come and preach once in a while and like poke at people Uh, but i'm doing it because i'm counting on you guys being graceful to me if you're feeling like oh he's stereotyping me uh, he's misrepresented me that's not fair those kinds of things, would you just sit for a minute and take a few deep breaths? Breathe in and breathe out with me. Just do that a few times and be open to the possibility of God speaking to us in different ways. Go ahead and take a deep breath. I know you can do it. Go ahead and breathe out. Doesn't that feel nice? Extend me grace. Thank you. Okay, so God is calling us beyond a left-right divide. He doesn't want that for us. He's calling us to be a place where his words find a home. A place where his words commune with us and dwell in us. Paul says in this verse that all Scripture is God-breathed. And this word breath is the key to understanding the verse. Breath. I want you to think CPR. I want you to think lovers so close you can feel the breath on your neck. Think about a newborn baby just came out, slapped on the bottom, and gasped its first breath breath life intimacy power that's how paul wants us to come to scripture but there's a whole lot more going on here in the greek and in the hebrew actually the word for breath is the same word for wind and spirit The English kind of forces a distinction, whereas the Greek and the Hebrew actually expand the meaning. And Paul is actually reaching back here to the very first pages of the Bible, where the world is dark and terrible and chaotic, and the Spirit of God is hovering in the darkness. I've always kind of wondered, Holy Spirit, what are you doing hovering in darkness, If I was to do that, people would think I'm weird. But there's the Holy Spirit hovering in the darkness, about to speak and breathe life into this world. And it climaxes when God creates Adam from dust. And here's what it says. He breathed, there's that word, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Theologians say that God's spirit, that God's breath, is his presence in this world. Here are a couple of other examples. So after Jesus is resurrected, or are told that it's by the Holy Spirit, he comes to his disciples, and he does the strangest thing. He comes up to them and breathes on them. And then he says, remember what he says? Receive The Holy Spirit. There's that same word right there. Or, um, this is before Jesus starts His ministry. He's baptized. And the Holy Spirit, same word for breath, descends on Him to give Him power to start His ministry. And then God speaks words of empowerment and identity. And He says, You are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. Breath links God to humanity. And His Spirit gives us power to then do good works. And that's what Paul says in verse 17 that we have the Scripture and the Spirit working in the Scripture so that we can do good works in this broken world. So when we look at Scripture, think God speaks life to us through His words, and He's offering. Himself. Not a checklist, not another option, but Himself. In Scripture, God wants us to be so close to Him that we can feel Him whisper into our ears. Okay, before we move on, can you guys close your eyes? Some of you already have your eyes closed, that's okay. Close your eyes, and I want you to take a couple deep breaths and just picture God close to you. Breathe in, breathe out, and picture God close to you. Do that a couple more times. And hear him saying to you, this to you right now. You are my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. I am so pleased with you. I'm so pleased with you. Okay, you can open your eyes and continue to breathe deeply if you want or normally or whatever. Let's keep moving backwards in the text where Paul describes a process of becoming. The 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 language used in the Greek is is about kind of like growing up, uh becoming a whole person kind of mature Christian. Can you imagine how beautiful it'd be if the church was made up of a bunch of mature Christians? It'd be like, wow, that would be really powerful and beautiful and great. Okay, how does that happen, though? How do we get trained up? How do we become that? One is the word, but there's also a method that I think is really important. The world right now— and the church as well is rapidly moving towards an educational model that is technology heavy. We've got online courses, videos, blogs, web pages, webinars, podcasts, virtual universities, etc. Now, okay, I don't want you to hear me wrong, there is place for this in the world and in the church, especially in remote, hard to reach areas. I think of Nicholas Ivans and what he does and it's like wow. Use it. It's wonderful. Um, I, myself, I just finished an online class. So don't hear me wrong. There is place for these kinds of things. But there can be a huge problem if we overemphasize technology and how we become, how we get educated, how we get trained and grow, because it places us further and further into an impersonal and lonely world where we're staring at glowing rectangles instead of other people's faces. And God is actually calling us deeper and deeper into more personal, kind of together-like reality. I work with young people, and here's what I tell them a lot of the time. I say Facebook, Hangouts, Instagram, those kind of platforms, they're teaching us how to not know how to be alone. Because we've always got to be connected. Always. We might miss something. And at the very same time, they're teaching us how to not know how to be together. Because we're not really together. And those are the two things that we really need if we want to be mature human beings. You've got to know how to be alone and be okay with it. And you've got to know how to be intimately in relationship with other people and be okay with it. Those two things are hard, but that's what we need. I read an article in The Atlantic uh, not too long ago about how psychologists are worried because teenagers are having less and less sex. They said they'd rather sit in their bedrooms with their phones doing you-know-what than being in the complexities of a real relationship, having to deal with somebody in The real world. And you can look at graphs that show how depression and anxiety in teens has skyrocketed since 2007. 2007, what happened then? Probably got one of these things in my pocket. It's when the iPhone came out, right? The biggest crisis of our age is not Vladimir Putin or North Korea. It's not Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. It's not even global warming. The biggest crisis of our age is a crisis of presence. We live in a world that is dying for presence. And as we're becoming more and more connected and webbed, at the same time, we're becoming internally more exiled and alienated. And that's why I think what Paul's talking about here is really exciting and important for us. Paul describes a way of growing people up and educating them and training them through a ministry of presence. Uh, In verses 14 and 15, he says, Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. So Paul's referencing some people here that we'd have to go back to chapter one to get who they are. And it's Timothy's grandmother and his mother who sat down with him since he was a boy and spoke the Torah to him, spoke the sacred writings, whispered it into his ear when he went to bed at night and lived it out. And Paul's also referencing himself. He says, Timothy, you're like a son to me. And I've passed this down to you in Your presence. So here's the pattern that's important for us. Faith grows over a long period of time in close, family-like relationships where the Word of God is central. Discipleship happens best when we can smell each other's breath. Morning breath, garlic breath, I just brushed my teeth breath, We need to be that close to each other. And this can't be fast-tracked. It can't be Google-translated, substituted, virtualized, filmed. It takes a ministry of presence. So we've been serving in the Czech Republic for 12 years, and um, at the heart of what I do is I disciple young Czech leaders, and we have a a team of leaders that we call Regeneration. Regeneration. And the way we do it is we invite them to come live with us for extended weekends throughout the year where we can eat together, we can pray together, we can study the Word together, we can wake up and see how ugly we are in the morning together, we argue together, we wash dishes together, we go on walks together. We are present with each other. And I'd probably say it's been the most impactful thing we've done In the last 12 years Is just inviting young people Into our home In order to be the church In this hurting world In these terrible dark times We don't desperately need Another app, another study plan Blog, online class Those things Can be helpful If they're not given prominence We desperately need Each other And we desperately need to be together with God. That's what we desperately need. Could you just take a second and write down a name of one or two people that have been present in your life in an impactful way? Or just think about it. If you want to, you don't have to write it down. Who's been present in your life? Okay, working backwards still, and we're finally getting to the beginning where Paul describes Timothy as a godly man who followed his teaching, conduct, faith, patience, love, perseverance. Those things I love, I can check them off. I can write them down. And then we hit a roadblock. You followed in my persecutions and sufferings. And indeed, Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wow. I don't think we like this. We are a culture of safety and comfort and convenience. We have life insurance, home insurance, health insurance, car insurance, border walls, Amazon who delivers things right to our doors. We've got alarms. We've got cars that we can drive straight into our garages so we don't have to talk with our annoying neighbors. If we were going to preach the Beatitudes today, we would say, blessed are the comfortable for they will not mourn. But when we live like that, we're just deceiving ourselves, right? And we're not giving God room to come in and protect us or rescue us from suffering, like Paul says in the text here. Here's the thing. God comes closest to us in suffering. In fact, in order to get close to us at all, He had to enter into the darkness of our suffering, into the darkness of this world where we're all carrying so much pain and sin. Suffering is God's way to commune with us. And if we try to avoid pain and suffering tooth and nail, if we try to self-protect and control our futures, we're actually pushing God away and missing the very thing that we're longing for, his closeness and his presence. There was a girl named Daisy several years back. I think she was six when she got stomach cancer. Uh, Our family was privileged to be praying for her, um, as were many, many other people. She had surgery and the cancer went away. And then it came back. She had surgery again it went away. It happened a third time. Everybody was praying, um, asking for God to heal her, to do a miraculous work. I remember getting some of the last updates. They were short requests like, pray that the diarrhea will stop, or pray that she could hold down just a little bit of water. After another lengthy hospital stay, the doctor called the parents into his office and he said, You guys are going to have to make a decision. You can let her die in the hospital, or you can take her home to die. The doctor left the parents alone, and they broke down and cried. A lot of the prayers that have been going through our heads for the last couple years, God, why haven't you healed her? She didn't deserve this. Why did she get this? She's just a little girl who loves you. Why this kind of suffering? God, can't you heal her now in the last hour? The dad said that it was in this moment he realized he realized he'd been asking the wrong question. He so said the question he needed to ask was, "God, would you please be with us in this? Would you please be close to us?" There's an old word that we don't use so much anymore. It's imminence. And it's this idea of the divine coming down into the physical world, the material world, to be close to us. In Christianity, this is seen most in the incarnation when Jesus enters into the world where God becomes a human. Jesus enters into our deepest sufferings so that he can be with us. He went on the cross and breathed his last, separated from the Father, from the presence of his Father, so that you and I could breathe freely and truly and deeply, so that you and I would never be left as orphans and not separated from the Father. The greatest gift that Jesus gives us is not a secure future a better insurance plan painkillers but he gives us himself he wants to be so close to you that you can feel his breath on your neck and he needed to enter into our suffering in order to do that we live in a polarized dark world don't we Each of us are carrying deep abysses of suffering and pain and darkness. But I believe that the Holy Spirit still hovers in dark places. He's still waiting to speak life and breathe new life into the void and darkness. There's tensions in our culture. Uh, We don't know when the plates will shift again. The earthquake will hit. But could it be that God is waiting for this to happen so that he can come through the cracks of all of our defenses so that when the masks fall, he could come to us and run to us with open arms and embrace us like a father does a son so that then we can truly grow up and be the kind of people that this world, this dark world needs? That's what God's calling us to be. Would you please pray with me? Father, you are, like we sang, a good, good Father. And we are, at our very core, loved by you. I give you praise and thanks for that. Lord, give us patience to become the people you've created us to be. Amen.